0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. If you haven't seen it yet, be sure to visit youtube.com soulpancake. Check out our animated series, Unmistakable Creative Shorts, in which we've taken some of the most poetic parts of our interviews and brought them to life visually. Now let's get into the episode. In this episode of the podcast, author, speaker, and coach Kerry Oberbrunner joins us to talk about overcoming resistance in our work and our lives, dealing with perfectionist tendencies, and much more. Carrie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
2: It's great to be here, Srini.
0: Yeah, it is uh, my pleasure to have you here. You know, you and I met because of our mutual friend, Mike Rohde, who was not only a former guest here on the show, but has been continually sending me amazing people to interview. Uh, So no pressure there. But uh, on that (laughs) note, can you tell us a a bit about yourself, your story, your your journey, your background, and how that has led you to all the work that you're up to in the world today?
2: Yeah, you know, Srini, it's it's been a wild, fun ride. Um, I grew up as a just a, a, a young kid who had a stuttering problem and, believe it or not, had a, just a lot of perfectionism qualities that I put on myself, a lot of pressure of being perfect, of, uh, and so what I fell into was an addiction uh, to self-injury, and and there's no way to start an interview by just laying it out there, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, this was back in the day before self injury was even known, before I could get help. So it was kind of just a secret that I kept to myself, but it was a way that I could essentially punish myself for not feeling like I measured up. Hmm. A lot of resistance right there. So, uh, a big dreamer, had a lot of dreams, a um, lot, uh, lot of desire to help people, but still felt very uncomfortable with myself and just that I couldn't measure up. And I think a lot of creative people uh, also feel that. And I had to work through it. So I, I worked through it in real time. <laughs> so I was a leader. I got promoted because of a addiction to achievement. I think I got promoted pretty young in, in a nonprofit organization. And In real time, I had to make a choice, and that was: do I keep living with this secret that nobody knows about, or do I kind of work it out under the spotlight? And I'll tell you what, Srini, I I worked it out in real time. It was a little bit painful, you know, first year of marriage, uh, coming coming clean with all that. But um, it has blown up in a in a major way. I, I overcame that. Um, addiction. I found healthier ways, like writing, to um, to communicate my creativity, and I've just been blessed to to work with people and now help them kind of overcome that resistance in their life as well.
0: Hmm. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, there's this tension between two sort of archetypes that I'm hearing about one is this dreamer and this achiever and then there's this other person who is you know dealing with self-injury I'd like to do a deeper dive into how that tension got resolved in your own life and how we start to resolve these kinds of tensions in our own life when we have these perfectionist tendencies and when we're incredibly difficult on ourselves
2: yeah you know there's a term out there called grace and grace is really just getting (laughs) what you don't deserve and I think people that struggle with perfectionism and that 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 tendency not only are they hard on themselves but they actually end up hurting the people around them because their standards are so high that they begin pushing other people away that of course we're all imperfect but a lot of these people could help them. And so, back in those dark, dark days, um, I, I, I kind of grew up thinking that, um, you know, not only does does the world need me to be perfect, but God needs me to be perfect, and that was just a lot of weight. I mean, of course, you're going to struggle with suicidal tendencies. Of course, you're going to struggle with depression. And people don't talk about that. You know, that's not something that people talk about, especially in the, in the area that I was. I mean, you're a leader and you're supposed to be leading people through their pain and yet you're, you're struggling with yourself. I'll tell you where it all hit the fan, Srini. It was in grad school where I was doing an advanced degree with, a, with an emphasis in counseling. And my instructors had to observe me uh, counseling through what's called counseling labs. And they said, Carrie, you are not going near people's pain. Why? And that was a big wake up call because I, 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 believe that we can't lead people where past where we've let ourselves. And because I had not been comfortable with my own pain, I certainly wasn't about to get near other people's pain. Um, Srini, have you ever seen the movie Inception? It's a very yeah. under Oh, you have. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's rare. Okay. <laughs> Cuz it it kind of went under the radar. Mm-hmm. But you know from that movie that emotions were kind of the evil in that society. So what did they do? They just curbed emotion. And I think that that's one of the things that that I did. I felt like emotions, you let your you let you let your heart open up for love, for beauty you're going to get hurt. So what you do is you create this false world that is very platonic. It's very emotionless. And kind of like Christian Bale in the movie, I had that breakthrough where I began to feel and I realized like, gee, that's what I'm missing in my life. And I'll tell you what, Srini, the art started flowing. (laughs) Once, Once I got past that mental block, um, i 'll tell you what I, I started writing more than ever. I started picking up, even though I'm horrible at uh you know art, painting, those types of things. I just started picking that stuff up because I think you open up a, a whole portion of your life when you take away the editor inside your brain
0: hmm. so this raises several questions for me. The first one being, what did you learn about? your own pain from getting so up close and and personal with other people's?
2: Yeah. I realized about my own pain that, um, I think human nature were control freaks, even if we don't want to admit it. Self-injury. I really studied the psychology of self-injury because I knew nothing about it. Only that I struggled with it. Once I understood that self-injury is a form of control it's a form of reenacting pain, but in a way that you control how long, how deep, how often. Um, that type of existence where you're always in control, is it's false. It's not true. I mean, any human relationship requires vulnerability, risk. Um, and what I learned from the process was that if I want to be loved truly, I need to... Love myself, and people are not okay with loving you if you have that self hatred because they they won't be able to get close to you. And it's not that my my life today is all about self injury. In fact, it's 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 really not. I'm a author, coach, and speaker now, and I do help people overcome resistance. I think I think we'll talk about that a little a little bit later about Shawshank. Mm-hmm. And, and that whole thing but here's the other thing i learned serene even if people don't want to admit it everyone is a self-injurer everyone is self-sabotaging their best work their best potential and even if they might not be picking up a literal blade they're picking up self-sabotaging behaviors beliefs these types of things and i think we all need to get through that and until we do We don't need any other critic because we often become our own worst critic.
0: Hmm. You think that we're largely unaware of uh, the level of self-hatred or or self-criticism that we tend to have in our lives?
2: Oh, yeah. I I, I totally think so. People will say their biggest fear is failure, Uh these types of things. I think it's actually success. I often teach people that success doesn't ruin you. It reveals you. See, a lot of people say, oh, look at that guy. I mean, he won the lottery or he got really successful. She's really successful. Look, it ruined him. No, it didn't. It's a bigger microscope. It's a bigger platform. It's a bigger spotlight. And we are scared to death of the bigger spotlight. I mean, we want to step on the bigger stage with the mask on but very few people are willing to step on the stage with the mask off and so therefore they self-sabotage so they don't have to be revealed and one of the things that I, I help people do with with their creative work is I get them comfortable with the gaps I mean this is what makes art beautiful and I know you're you got a fantastic thing you're doing with with your work and your art but great art is believable. (laughs) Great art is not uh, polished, pristine, perfect. I mean, think about that. That, That's the lie that I was carrying around, and that's the lie that a lot of creatives are carrying around, that their art has to be polished, polished perfect, these types of things. You will never ship, in the words of Seth Godin, Mm -hmm. you will never launch, as long as you are continuing to have that high standard. And currently, I'm 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 coaching 100 authors in their work of art, and I see this come out all the time. Uh, it's it's I can predict it. I can predict that they fall in love with the idea of writing, they get into the manuscript, and then they hit the resistance, and they're wondering and they're stuck. Um, what happens if this thing goes big? Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to deal with that relationship or that tendency and. And they get scared and and we want to run back and hide, but that's the beauty of, of the hero's journey that we're all in.
0: Hmm. You know, what's interesting to me is that the circumstances of your life manifested in two different ways at two different times. The first was this whole notion of self-injury and perfectionism. Hmm. And then it manifested in the form of being a writer. And I'm interested in understanding why you think it manifests negatively in some people's life and why it manifests positively in some people's life. And if it is manifesting negatively, how do they, how do they change it?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That, that tendency for self-sabotage?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you've, you, like I said, I mean, you've had, you've had kind of had, you know, this tendency has manifested in two different ways, one mm-hmm. positive and one negative.
2: Mm-hmm. There's a metaphor that, we often use in our tribe, and it's about pain. And I think I think this is what we're talking about. Um, there's a few quotes that I love about pain. One is that pain is inevitable, but misery is a choice. Mm. In other words, in other words, America, especially, um, even though I've traveled globally, America has this ideal that says, Let's eradicate pain. And everyone who's human knows that pain comes with life. But you have two options of pain. One is the chronic pain, which we'll talk about in a moment. The other is acute pain. So when I was self-injuring, I was definitely in chronic pain. Chronic pain is it's manageable. It's beneath the surface. It's always in the background. It's constant, and people sadly live, most people, in chronic pain. It's not bad enough that they actually have to do something about it, but they complain about it all the time. Very few people are willing to invite and embrace acute pain because acute pain is intentional, it's focused, it's short-term. You know, Serena, in fact, I've heard that you're working on uh, a book,
0: mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct.
2: Yeah, and... Uh, I think one of your first chapters or something was about the paddle out.
0: Uh-huh.
2: I love it. I love it. By the way, everyone needs to get that. <laughs> get that book when it comes out. But you know that when you say, I want to write a book, well, who doesn't? You know, 81% of people say, I want to write a book. But then they live in the chronic pain of not doing it, because less than 1% do. Mm-hmm. Acute pain is saying, you know what? I'm getting up at 5 a.m i'm digging deep i'm dealing with all the demons of does this stink (laughs) is it worth it are people gonna read it um what you chose to do serenity which any artist does is they say i am going to combat the chronic pain by inviting the acute pain in my life this is what every extreme athlete does this is what um in fact, the metaphor is like back pain. If, if you go to a the doctor and say, Doc, my back's killing me, I'm in chronic back pain, he doesn't say, oh, no worries, jump up on the table, here's my knife, let's, let's do surgery. What he's going to say is, you got a weak core, and you got a choice. If you want to overcome your chronic back pain, you have to invite push-ups, pull-ups, planks, pilates, and it will hurt, and it will hurt for a moment, but you'll get stronger. And very few people in life are willing to invite the acute pain creativ- uh, creatively, whatever, so that they can overcome a life of chronic pain.
0: Wow. That was profound.
2: I, I almost think that success, whatever we define success, especially with as artists, almost is tied to your level of pain tolerance.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So- it- one of the other ideas that you have talked about uh, was this notion of false constructs that we create uh, in our lives that actually keep us from doing our best work and keep us hiding behind these masks. How do you start to let go of that inner critic, that inner editor, and dismantle these false constructs that seem, you know, delude us into thinking they're helping us when they're not?
2: Yeah. I, I say a phrase, I mean, you know, I could go into a whole philosophy, but let me just say it with one phrase. Here's one example. Market before you manufacture. Okay? Market before you manufacture. It's a whole mindset that says that, you know what? Frozen, Frozen 2, the movie, is already marketing before they're manufacturing. Uh, A trip to Disney, you pay for it before you ever step foot in it. Movies, we call them trailers. You know. Life, a lot of art is marketing before you manufacture, meaning that all things are created twice. And once you realize that as an artist, that in one level you create it mentally. I'm in a room right now, Srini, I'm looking at sunglasses, wallet, keys, desk. Every single one of those things was created first mentally. And then the designer created it the second time with actions what the artist needs to realize is let's shorten that gap. Let's realize that, you know what, we speak it into existence, we, we dream it, we, we, we visualize it, and then you know what? Let's shorten the gap. And part of shortening the gap is that you cannot become a creator and an editor at the same time. I'll take, I'll take the microcosm of a book process, for example. There's called crafters and drafters crafters are people who write and then they stop and say that sentence stunk. I'm going to go back. And then they tweak it. And then they get another sentence. Oh, I don't like that verb. Oh, oh, oh. What this is, it's left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain, at the same time. I've, I've heard that it's likened to trying to race in a bike race up a hill and stop and change a flat tire at the same time. In other words... The progress never happens. Other people are drafters as writers. They just say, you know what? I don't care if there's grammar mistakes. I don't care if there's pockets that end up getting cut of of this book. They draft, they draft, they draft, and then they go back, draft a second time, draft a third time, draft a fourth time. Which one are you, Serena? Are you a crafter or are you a drafter?
0: Um, I would probably say a crafter me too.
2: <laughs> I am a crafter too and even if I want to tell myself carry that last paragraph you'll come back to it. It's tough to do. But I'll tell you what happens, Srini. I think what unlocks all creatives is deadlines. Because when you have a deadline like I'm currently in a deadline right now to write um, a very scary book for me that's you know a whole new genre. I don't have the luxury of saying, well, you know what, I got 12 months to make this thing happen. We know from human nature, what is it, Parkinson's law, Parkinson's Law, that the longer you wait to do something, the more difficult it becomes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In other words, if your teacher in college says, folks, you have all semester to do this project, and in five months it's due, human nature is You're going to agonize about it for four months, four and a half months, maybe four months and three weeks. It's going to be mentally drained. It's going to suck the life out of you. It's always going to be in your back subconscious. But the last week, you'll crank it out and do it. Well, what if that teacher said, folks, same assignment. It's due in two days. Suddenly, the editor has to be assassinated because you don't have the luxury of, the de- of, of, of a long deadline. So I really think, Sereni that some of what you're talking about is write in accountability groups. Mm-hmm. Give yourself deadlines. Um, don't allow yourself. I mean, I know right now, true story, I'm working on this book. I have a crazy deadline. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's inhumane. Why? Because I have a conference coming up and I want this book and it's been sitting in my mind. You know what a loved one said to me? when I told them that I needed it, to get it done in the deadline, here's what they said. Well, just make sure it's good, too. <laughs> you know, and, and, I mean, you don't know what a former self-injurer hearing that comment, right? Because, like, duh, of course it's going to be, you know, of course I'm not going to let it go out unless it's good. But, see, we listen to those voices and we say, oh, they're right. It's got to be good. And then we translate good to perfect. And then we, then we freeze all of our creativity.
0: in the earlier part of a conversation that when you were younger you had a stutter uh and you know yeah. that led you to self-injury and all these other things but now you're an author a coach and of all things a speaker yeah and going from somebody who has a stutter to being somebody who is a speaker is a pretty radical internal identity shift in my opinion yeah and what i'm interested in is two things, how you made the identity shift that enabled that and how other people can make identity shifts in their own lives to reach their potential.
2: Yeah. Love it. I mean, I just got done speaking to a crowd of business leaders this morning. And um, here's what I know, Srini. All of us believe two lies. Uh, I think all self limiting beliefs can be reduced into two lies. And those two lies are I am not enough and I don't have enough. So I am not enough. And that deals with our identity and you can fill in the blank. I am not beautiful enough. I am not smart enough. You know, I am not educated enough, whatever. And then I don't have enough deals with resources. I don't have enough networks. I don't have enough financial support, whatever. So I know I had to say that point. You asked a question. I'm going to finish the statement, but tell me, tell me again your question because this this relates to the self-only beliefs. Oh, the stutter thing?
0: Well, basically, I mean, you answered it to some degree, but what we're talking about here is how such a radical identity shift happened yes, in your life.
2: Yes, 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 yes. So, I'll, tr- true story, man. I've been on TV interviews, the whole thing. I still get a little bit nervous, okay? So... All the, all, the, all the images that come back of me, true story, running off the stage senior year of high school the week before the school play and having one of the major parts and freezing during play practice and running off crying, even though I was captain of the wrestling team a few months before. I mean, that and vowing to the universe, I will never speak again publicly. I mean, this was a big... This was a big issue, a big problem. So what happens to me is the story I tell myself. We all tell ourselves stories. When I struggle with stuttering, uh, you know, when it comes flooding back, I tell myself a story. Um, Carrie, if you mess up, you're not going to be loved. Carrie, you're going to make a fool of yourself and people are going to um, you know, be embarrassed by you. I mean, we create the story in our head. And it sounds simple, but it's so true. Uh, I even see this with my 10-year-old son, Srini. It's already happening at 10 years old. We'll be shooting baskets together. Uh, he likes basketball. He'll miss one, and he'll say, oh, it's not my day today. And I say, whoa, whoa, hold on. You know, After this happens a few times, I say, what do you mean it's not your day? I mean, think about the story that he's telling himself, you know? Um, I said, what could you say? So you missed a, He could tell himself that throw didn't work or, you know what? I need to hold the ball differently. And so I think that creatives need to realize that you are always telling yourself a story. And one story is I am not enough and I don't have enough. And the other story is that I am enough and I have enough. And I had to do some major work with that. I mean, it, it, for me, it went major into my faith. I had to realize that before God, I am enough uh, because of what he's done for me. Um, those, those central stories to me shaped the outcome. And here's the other thing. Who's the focus when I'm stuttering? I mean, this is a big one. This is, a, this, this is, this is subtle but big. If someone's freaking out about stuttering, if someone's freaking about out about their work, who's the focus? The, the, the creator is totally focused on themselves. How am I looking? How am I appearing? How am I going to be judged? As a creative, when you shift and say, I'm a servant and my art is serving, my craft is serving the outside world, the higher good, now the audience is the focus. And when you do that, the pressure comes off. Hmm.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's another thing that you mentioned that really caught my attention. And it took me back to a conversation that we had uh, about a year ago with a guy named Sam Polk, uh, who talked about addiction to money and success. And you mentioned that you were addicted to achievement. Hmm. And it was really interesting to have that conversation because he compared addiction to achievement, like addiction to drugs and addiction to things like cocaine and heroin. And he said, "It, you know, we don't think of it as addiction because we praise it so much. Yeah. And yet he said, if you actually look at the behaviors, it has all the same uh, mm. characteristics of addiction. Mm. And I want to talk about this in more depth. Uh, I want to understand one, you know, how you recognize you were addicted to achievement uh, how it played out in your life, and how you broke the addiction.
2: Yeah. I'll tell you what. The fact that social media is <sighs> essentially <laughs> essentially immediate uh, praise uh-huh. or, or cursing. Um, I, know a, I know a gal. I'm friends with her on Facebook. She struggled with weight, and so now she uh, is thin. Uh-huh. You know, and she, I look at her Facebook feed just because it comes to my wall. She is constantly, I mean, twenty four seven, putting herself out there as weight. Uh, that's how she sees herself as uh-huh. weight. You know, what's the number on the scale? And and when she's good, uh, when people comment, you yeah. see now we now we get into this whole thing. Oh, I look good. Uh, how many likes do I have? Mm-hmm. And all the research is showing dopamine squirts happen when we get likes and shares and tweets. And this is, this is the subtle trap for us as creators. I mean, you have a fantastic podcast. You have fantastic work. Your team does. You know, I hope we're doing the same thing. And, and it can become very addictive to now not judge based on the quality of the work, based on the reaction of the crowd, mm-hmm. which, which really makes all art, uh, I would say it, it diminishes the purpose of art. It becomes now reader response instead of uh, how is this art going to affect the world? Now it's how am I going to be judged? And yeah. now, we start, now we start taking not as many risks And, oh, it it can be a total trap. And so one of the things I've done is um, the comparison game. I think we all have in our head people that we kind of think are better. You know, oh, that person's further ahead. That person's better. And what I've realized is that the comparison game robs joy. I mean, it absolutely sucks the joy because you can have the best day. And if you're out there and your, quote, competitor has a better day, it robs the joy. It cheapens your work. And it, 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 and gratitude is one of the highest vibrations of, of human emotion, gratitude. And what I've learned to do, um, Srini, is I've learned to be grateful. I I've, I've learned that you know what um one of my favorite one of my favorite books says that a person can gain the whole world and lose their soul and I can have a million Facebook friends I can have all these things but if I'm not um centered uh I like to say with my creator my core and my community it's all for naught I'm I'm not aligned then and I see people that are killing it I mean Serene, don't you can't you tell the people who have the cracks? <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, I get their newsletters. And uh, for instance, uh, here's an example. An example is I know a guy who set out that his big project of 2015 was to be on, New York, on the New York Times bestseller list. And I mean, he leveraged everything, relationships, everything to make that mark. And when he didn't make that mark, I'm telling you, less than 24 hours, he creates another thing after that window was gone so that now he has a backup for his identity. Wow. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and I think that that's what we can do is like you aren't your art. Your art's a reflection of you. But when, when the art becomes your idol, You'll never be happy.
0: Okay, so this raises a question that I've asked a handful of people, and uh, it's something that I have had to to really learn how to manage, and I I still struggle with it to this day. Uh, You know, El Luna in her book *The Crossroads of Should and Must* had a quote that stuck with me. She said, "You know, what if um, the product, uh, what if our work is so thoroughly autobiographical that the product can't be parsed from the person?" And I, I loved that. I, I thought it was such a beautiful way to say something. But then it also raised uh, the question of how do you manage this issue of your sense of self-worth fluctuating on how the work is, is being received and, and all of that? Uh, you know, yeah. it, it, On a good day, it's like, wow, you know, this many people downloaded the podcast, this many copies of the book sold. The next day, it's like, wow, I'm wasting my life away doing this. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's, it's, so I'm just really interested in hearing what you have to say about it.
2: Yeah, I think that there's this posture, let's call it that. There's this posture that says because I'll tell you what, you know, I I could get ten emails or mm-hmm. or a hundred emails if ninety nine of them say I'm the best thing in the world, the art is the best thing, and yeah, you know, a it doesn't affect me, right? But if I get the one that says what are you? Yeah. Who are you? That thing will stick with you for 20 years. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And I mean, who knows? Maybe the guy didn't even read your thing and he's just being a hater. Yeah. So I think we all have that. And, and what I've learned from the mentors in my life is hold the compliments and the criticism with an open hand and a loose hand. Mm -hmm. And I know it's easier said than done But one of the things, and I know I've listened to some of your other podcasts, um, people talk about how they get away from their art. I think that that's healthy. I think that um, you know it's good to get out in nature. It's good to get to the ocean. I think you do you surf? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a surfer because I live in Ohio, but. there's certain, for me, it's working out. I mean, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not a CrossFit dude, but we, I hang with some pretty tough, crazy guys. We do these workouts, and it is awesome and good to get away from the art to experience that acute pain, the endorphins, and then to go back and crush it. And I think that we need to kind of step outside at times, play with our kids if we have kids. Um, just the other day, you know, took my littlest one, we did a, we did go-karts and just to feel that separation from the, uh, addiction of, of the reader response that's so immediate, I think is very healthy.
0: So before we get, uh, into talking about Shawshank and and resistance and all of that, which is really kind of what intrigued me about your whole story. I want to ask you one last question. It's something that I've asked a lot of people. Uh it, It's a bizarre coincidence that, or or not maybe, <laughs> that in the last several months, there has been a string of guests, you know, Donald Miller, John Acuff, Rob Bell, uh, enough that it, it actually, you know, got somebody to ask me, Srini, do you have some sort of religious thing that you're exploring at the moment? And I said, no, that's just coincidental. But I'm really interested in in hearing, you know, you talked about it earlier about faith in God. And I'm, I'm just really interested in the role that spirituality and religion play in your life and your work. Yeah.
2: So I grew up as a kid, highly, highly exposed to religion. Um, I'm talking the school, the, the parents who worked in that job. I mean, it was life. And what I realized is that, uh, I was not good with God, (laughs) meaning when I love this quote by Annis Nin. It says, "We don't see we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are." And when I felt disconnected from God, I you could have given me all the money in the world. You could have given me all the relationships in the world. But if you're not right with like the Creator. and that's according to my view, Um, life's not right. And what I realized is a lot of that self-injury came from trying to please this force, this God who was always happy. And I think imagery is very powerful. In my mind, God was always upset, always frustrated, always angry. I was like the, the, the kid who could never get it right. And that was a very toxic yet powerful story what i've learned as i had to go through that and it became my own faith and not my parents is that that is actually a improper and false it's it's actually frankly an idol <laughs> cuz an idol just means false and that's what it was it was a false religion that i set up in my mind based on this whole uh, you know this this principle of of Maybe karma, which says you get what you you know you get what you give, and this type of thing. Grace, in the words of Bono, "Grace ruined me." I mean, it really did. I studied a lot about you two. I've read a lot about you two. Uh, you know, I'm not saying Bono's the best thing since sliced bread, but he's he's pretty good. And, <laughs> and and you know, he talks about grace, and he has a song called Grace. But but grace is different. Grace says. You are the, the, the mess-up son or daughter. You are the one who's never going to measure up. And and I love you anyway. And uh, I came and, and uh, paid the crime for you. I mean, that ruined me. And, and here's what it did for me, Serena. Before I had that, I was the worst judge. Because think about it. If a, a, you don't tell a self-injurer... Uh, who's trying to, you know, crush it, who's carving F words on his body because he's so hung up in that perfectionism. You don't tell him, hey, here's another loser who's not even trying. Go ahead and love him. No, I mean, that person's an offensive to me. But now when I realize that I messed up, suddenly I realize, oh my gosh, I'm the biggest hypocrite. I'm the biggest. That uh, There was this religious system back in the day called Phariseeism, and they were, they were like the biggest judges out there. That's who I was. And when I, when I got crushed by grace, I'll tell you what happened. Suddenly, I became uh, very comfortable with other messed up people. Suddenly, the religious people were the ones that I felt uncomfortable around because they reminded me of myself. And now I got really excited to be around with, with with other people that are also on this journey of redemption, and it it opened my it gave me more tolerance, more grace, more more kindness and uh, forgiveness because I realized what I've been forgiven from. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, I think the, the mention of redemption makes uh, a sort of perfect setup for uh, how I want to start wrapping things up. Uh, and what got my attention in the first place about your work was this whole, whole notion of escaping from Shawshank. So I, I'd love for you to talk about you know, where that comes from, what it means, and uh, you know, what it means for the people who are listening.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of your listeners have probably seen The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's voted on the polls as the number one movie of all time by, 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 the, by people wow. under, uh, above Godfather, even. So, it, you know, it changes with different polls. But it's a popular movie. And why? Because it's not about uh, Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins and two guys in a prison. No. Shawshank Redemption is a metaphor for life that says, I'm in a situation, I didn't ask for it, I want to become institutionalized and give up and just be part of the system. But something in me is bigger, it's, it's longing, and I want to get out, and I want to go and escape to this place called Zewatanejo, this place that is a place that has no memory, where I can begin again, where I can create the life that I know I'm called to create. I mean, that is the story of humanity. <laughs> and so... Originally a a novella written by Stephen King and then a movie done by Frank Darabont, Um, it's an epic movie. So I'm watching the movie one night as I'm working on my next book. Uh, This was years ago, hating the book that I was currently writing, saying my heart's not in it. And I watch the movie and I say, you know what, I don't know how, I don't know why, but somehow I'm going to be tied to that movie. And that's a pretty arrogant thing to say. Um, and yet, you know what? I know your listeners have just as big a dream in their heart. And I know that sometimes when we talk about a big dream, people think it's arrogance when really, no, it's something that's been given to you. It's entrusted to you. It's an idea and, and you need to go with it. So I knew I was going to be tied to that movie. I had no clue about Shawshank. I am not from Ohio. I'm from Wisconsin. And I started to do research, and I started to realize, oh my gosh, this film was, was done in Mansfield, Ohio, 90 minutes from my house. I am going to write my next book in Shawshank Prison. I don't know how, but I want to talk about the journey of going from your day job, which is a prison for 86% of the population, and getting into your dream job, and that's your Ziwataneho. and somehow I'm going I'm to write the book. So literally, uh, Serena, I, I asked my wife, I'm like, uh, you know, hey, can I can I go up to this prison and 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 write the book there? And she's like, what are you talking about? You know, which which is normal. That's our normal conversation. Um, but I went up there and I talked to the people and I said, look, this is the story and and and. I can't write about a prison while I'm sitting in the hammock in my backyard drinking lemonade. That's not authentic. And they let me into Andy's solitary confinement cell. I wrote uh, those portions of the book in the prison. It's a beautiful, haunting prison. I mean, they have ghost tours. They have crazy stuff. But at the same point, I've never experienced any of that. For me, it's a symbolic metaphor for what's blocking us from our creativity. And Serenity, it became uh, deeply part of my life. I launched my book at Shawshank Prison at the 20th anniversary. The warden was there, Bob Gutton. And it was, a, it was a dream, man. We launched the book there. And now I actually take people to Shawshank for a coaching experience for artists, authors, and entrepreneurs. And we do three things. We identify their resistance in their life. We engage their resistance and we overcome their resistance. And it's done through, uh, moving from their prison to their plan, to their payoff.
0: Wow. Um, that brought that in and of itself probably warrants a second interview. I don't even know know if we'd have time to cover, uh, all the questions that opens up. Uh, we got about five minutes here. So, I want to ask you one last question. I mean, how do we start tackling this demon of resistance? I mean, I have my own ideas about it from sitting down with Stephen Pressfield's work every morning. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in a a short sort of condensed version, how do we start to manage this?
2: How do we manage the resistance? Yeah. Yeah. Number one, you realize that it's a sign you're on the right path. Uh. Nobody says, you know what, I'm going to go sit on the couch and watch reality TV and have a bag of chips. And oh my gosh, resistance is in my way and it's telling me not to do this. And it's, no, resistance says, go ahead, sit on that couch, man. You're doing fine. I'm not going to show up. In other words, resistance shows up when you're on the right path. And so number one, I, I look I look for resistance. I'm not surprised anymore when it comes. I say, oh, here's the signal that I'm on the right path. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, I'm really big into community. And we, we have something called the Igniting Souls Tribe. And, and it's basically a group of people that have bonded together to say, we are jointly in resistance and we're going to keep each other accountable. We're going to keep each other focused. And so I think I'm really big into a community that helps you fight resistance. If it's you against the world, you'll lose every time.
0: Well, Kerry, this has been incredible. Uh, I've just enjoyed listening to you so much. Uh, So I want to finish with one last question, which I know you've heard me ask since you've listened to a few of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Yeah.
2: To go back to the metaphor that we talked about, it's somebody who says... I am going to embrace the acute pain. I'm going to lean in, dig deep, and I'm not going to take the, uh, to use the matrix as an example, I'm not going to just erase my brain and get put back in the matrix and be like everybody else. I am going to take the pill that says it's messed up, there's struggle, there's tension, but there's beauty and adventure. And I think it's someone who's authentic to that journey.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, like I said, this has been phenomenal, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and uh, your insights with our listeners.
2: Thanks for all you do, and you're doing fantastic work. Keep it up.
0: Yeah, and for everybody listening, uh, we will wrap the show with that. If you're new to the show and enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week for my conversation with my longtime mentor and friend, Greg Hartle. Here's a sneak peek. Most of the time, human beings react and act in, by and large, the way the environment with which they're around is acting. In one of our most riveting two-part episodes of all time, Greg and I talk extensively about what it means to live well and die well. So make sure you subscribe and tune in on Monday for part one. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.